All right, a little shameless plug before we get in the text. That is, we have these available in the foyer if you want to pick one of these up. It's called Celebrate Resurrection at Home, and it's a family guide for Holy Week. It starts with Palm Sunday today, gives a scripture reference, and it proceeds to give you some questions you can answer with your family. If you have uh, kids, there's some questions to answer your kids, ask your kids. If you're roommates or you want to get it together with friends, it goes through every day of this next week. We're in the Passion Week. Sunday, Palm Sunday, today, which is why we have all these palms up here, it starts the Passion Week. Jesus coming in Jerusalem, laying down his life for us, uh, ultimately on Golgotha, the place of the skull where he died on the cross for us, and then ultimately rising from the dead. And uh, in those ways, we have just a, a kind of an overview of the whole week in this little easy to read, easy to utilize, little packet for you. Uh, ends on Resurrection Sunday and gives you some questions. So if you're interested, pick one of these up on the way out. It's part of our family ministries. We make these available for our families so that uh, parents can pass on their faith to their children as ordained by God. And uh, we're excited to see them go out. And uh, so if you'd like to pick one up on your way out there, there's, there's are for you and, uh, and such. So um, open your Bibles with me. It, John chapter 12, we're going to do an overview on some pretty exciting stuff tonight. I hope you guys are alert, you're ready. Like me, you got a nap in if needed. Sunday afternoon naps are the best. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for afternoon naps on Sunday. And, uh, but Sunday night, we're, we're going to dig into some text. It's going to be great. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the wall back there. Go ahead and grab one. It's yours to keep. If you don't have your own Bible, if you do, great. Just return it at the end. That's fine. We want you to have the Word of God, so we are here for you in that regard. Uh, my name is James. If you're uh, new or you don't know who I am, I'm the Family Ministries Pastor here at Calvary Slow, and uh, we've been doing an overview of Ephesians the last few months. As Brian was saying, he's been recovering with his voice. And uh, tonight, though, we're going to do a little timeout, and next week, obviously, for Easter Sunday, we're going to do a timeout as well from Ephesians, and then we'll get back to it uh, after the first week of Easter but tonight we're going to look specifically at Palm Sunday. Now here's why I am so excited to be here tonight. Is we're looking at a historical text called the Bible. It's based in history. History is in the palm of God's hands. He's the one who's ordaining history. He's making in history uh, intertwine and come together in different ways so that history glorifies himself. He's done that forever, times past whether it's been involving his creation or his activity in saving mankind through his son, Christ Jesus. Um, he's bringing history. He's intertwining it together as human events unfold. We get to see them, but God's the one that ordains them. There's a purpose in everything that God's doing throughout history, and you can see that. In times like tonight, I'm super pumped to be able to share with you how we can see these kind of streams of prophecy and prophets and God's working through the people of Israel, the people he called his own people. Him bringing these different streams together in this culmination, this apex, this crux of human history called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday isn't just uh, uh, something where you get together plants and lead us into Easter week. Palm Sunday is actually far deeper than that. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So open up in John 12 if you haven't already. And let's read that text together. And we'll look at one of the accounts. All four Gospels have the account of the entry into Jerusalem by Jesus, the King. We're going to take a look through John, the disciple, he says, of himself whom Jesus loved. We're going to look at his account of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, down to the Mount of Olives from Bethany, where he had been with Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, you read with me, it says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, that's where he was, and there they met him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, why would John take a moment and say who was sitting at the table? It's because this guy was dead, and now he's eating. That is significant. <laughs> we just read over that like, oh, great, Lazarus is there. No, this guy was dead. And Jesus raised him four days later. His body was stinky. Okay, in the scriptures it says, don't take him, don't open that door. He's, he's beginning to rot. Okay, this guy's eating at the table. Jesus is there. Whenever you have a dead guy raised from the dead, something of a word is going to get out and spread. Verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his, wiped his feet with her hair. 
And the house was filled with the fragrance of this oil. Now that was a year's wages. She took a jar. And in another gospel it records for us that she not only did his feet, but anointed his head as well. So you have this aroma, this, this fragrance filling the room of worship, filling the room of, of adoration for this king. But look how Jesus describes this. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, he's the one eventually to betray Jesus for 30 coins of silver. It says, he who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. So he's in control of the money bag. And in this case, that's not the person you want to be in control of the money bag because he's helping himself. And he's, he's throwing out this kind of air of, religiosity for the sake of just saying, hey, um, this is a waste. This adoration of the Savior is a waste. That was worth a year's wages. That was our 50K. That was our 60K. We could have put that in and fed the poor with it. All the while just thinking, man, if I'd only had access to that money, I would have gotten some more goods. So he wasn't altruistic in his motives. But look at this. This is what Jesus says in describing what just happened. The Rome is filling the air. They've watched Mary take this expensive perfume and anoint Jesus. And he says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. She's kept this for the day of my burial. Super significant. Why? Because Jesus is identifying now. He's turned a corner. There's something of a focus of his that has to do with dying. He says, now we're going to go up. I'm going to be delivered over to the authorities. And I'm going to be handed over by the chief uh, priests and scribes, and they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And and the disciples, I I think uh, as he uttered this, this is for my burial, they probably uh, choked on their bread or their wine or their water. Because when you're following somebody, when your leader is leading the way, and, and there's great promise with this leader. See, they're occupied. We're going to get into this in a second. There's some background information that's really pertinent but just consider yourself being in the control of the russian or russians the romans (laughs) just imagine san luis obispo being invaded by the by the russians they're they're in a place of occupation they're not in control they're not autonomous as a as a people and they're following this jesus for three years and then he starts talking about giving his life up and dying and he's and he says this is a beautiful thing. This is worship. This is right. He didn't rebuke her. He rebuked the one who came against the anointing, and that being Judas. And he says specifically, don't hinder her. Let her alone. Don't get upset because this is appropriate because I'm going to die. This is for my burial. Now, if you're following your leader, you don't want your leader to start talking about going to his death, do you? If you're following a king and the king's like, this is so awesome that you're with me because Right now, I'm getting ready to die. They're going to kill me. Historically speaking, you don't follow kings that are going to die. You want a conquering king. You want a victorious king. You want a king that's going to rise above the fray, overcome the enemy, and do something of a work that's beyond your ability to do it for yourself. You want somebody who's going to conquer, in other words. You're going to be want to somebody to have palm branches that are symbolic for victory to be laid upon him and before him because you're following someone who's going to be victorious. Jesus is starting to say no. This is the timing. This is the crux. This is where we're all going. It's all coming together according to the Father's will that I die. And and, and that just doesn't compute for us as people, and it didn't for them. And verse 9 says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but why? Because they wanted to see Lazarus, who was dead and had been risen from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. No doubt... That had caused an uproar. Lazarus' raising from the dead was super, super significant. People were flocking to see Jesus because they wanted to see the dead guy that was no longer dead. And in this, the leaders were being threatened. They're saying, this guy's becoming way too popular. We've got to put both him and the guy he rose from the dead to death. Isn't that kind of silly? Like, all right, how are we going to fix this? All right, we'll kill him. Oh, that didn't work last time. <laughs> he was dead and he got raised. But that was their plan. So in verse 12, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, parenthetically, that's the Passover feast, okay? So the feast is coming up, and they said, They heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
They took palm branches, palm, branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him and cried out. Here's Palm Sunday. They shouted. They, they cried out. They, they uh, made a chorus, if you will, of shouts of praise. And they quote Psalm 118 here, and they say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're like, here comes the King. Here comes, here comes the one we've been waiting for. Here comes the one that, that puts the exclamation point on the fact that we're hopes, our, all of our hopes and all of our dreams are going to culminate in this promised King, promised King of Israel, and here he's coming. And the, and the crowd is, is coming together in such a way where it's undeniable that they're of one focus saying, here's the one we've been waiting for. This is the one that's going to deliver us. And they're shouting. They're quoting the Old Testament, the psalm. And this is from rabbis past, always been known as a messianic psalm. In fact, Psalm 113 through 118 were always sung during this festival season of Passover. Four days. From Nisan of uh, the 10th on the Jewish calendar to the 14th, that was the Passover feast. And and all through that, these psalms, 113 through 118, interestingly enough, were being sung the whole time. The, after, for example, after they would finish the Passover meal, every family brought in a lamb, and they killed that lamb, and they roasted that lamb, and they gave part of that lamb away to the priest as an offering. They would bring in that lamb, and after they finished the feast, they would go on their roofs, and they would face the temple. And when they faced the temple, they would shout what's called the Hallel. It means praise in, in uh, Hebrew. And they would face the temple and they would sing these psalms as they face the temple, as they rejoice, as they praise the Lord. We're going to look at Psalm 118 in just a second. But it was a wonderful thing as they're bringing together this exclamation, God, Hosanna, which means save and do it now. Save and do it now. They're shouting this to Jesus as he's, walk, as he's coming in on a donkey. They're saying save and do it now. We're tired of what we're dealing with. We want you to overcome. We want you, our king, to be victorious. Uh, kind of a pause there. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, you remember what was written above his head? Pontius Pilate put a placard, had it, had it written above his head in three different languages, and it said basically this, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And remember, the leaders of the Jewish people didn't want that to be the, what was written. In fact, they said, let it, let it be written, Pontius Pilate, let it be written, that's what he says he was. But you've written, that's what he is. Okay, go six days, or five days, even four days for that matter, when everybody's deserting Jesus, when everybody's turning their back on him, when, he's, when they're calling for the crucifixion, just, just review or rewind. Just a few days earlier, they were saying, that's our king. It didn't take very long, did it? For the whole theme of the throngs to be, not you're our king, but... That's what he says. And it's farthest from the truth. That's how quick as people we can turn our backs on God. It's unbelievable. And it happened here. So at this point, Jesus is coming up into Jerusalem. They're singing these songs of praise that they knew were prophetic about the coming Messiah. And they were doing this as a people yelling at the top of their lungs, we know who you are. You're the Messiah. We are expecting you. Save us now. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he is the King of Israel. Now, there's some background I want to go over with you guys that make this even more com- just compelling of a, of a date in history. One particular day when Jesus wrote in was significant. Why? Let's put up the slide, if you will. The first one. At the time of Jesus, Rome was in, co- in control of Judea. We all know this. The reason why there was a Pontius Pilate on the scene was because Israel was not autonomous. They didn't have their own ability to rule themselves. They were even under the control worship speaking or wise. They couldn't worship as they wanted to without the approval or the permission of Rome. And Pontius Pilate was the local guy in charge of that area. And we know all the scene of Jesus going before him and being tried by Pontius Pilate. But Rome was the one that was occupying the territory, the worship ground. The holy temple mount was not under their control. That's why they couldn't kill Jesus directly. They called for him to be crucified because they couldn't execute justice on their own people because they didn't have autonomy. They didn't have political autonomy. Next, background. At this specific time of year, this was Passover, as we talked about. There's four days that the feast was happening. The first day of the Passover feast was when they had all the lambs chosen, one for each family. And those lambs were given on the 10th of Nisan, 
which is exactly the day when Jesus presents himself as king, riding on the back of a donkey. That was the same day where everybody's picking out their lambs to be sacrificed in honor of the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? You guys think about this. This is crazy. A thousand years earlier thereabouts, Moses was given the charge of leading the people out of slavery. They were in bondage. They couldn't free themselves. And God hears their cries of save now. And he, and he says, I'm sending you a deliverer and, and you're going to be delivered out of the hand of, of the Egyptians who are enslaving you. You are not autonomous. I'm going to rescue you because I've heard your cries. I'm going to bring you out of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey and you're going to be my people and I will be your God and you will be prosperous in that land. It's my gift to you. But, but the purchase of that freedom came only when the Egyptians let them go because why? Because the angel of death was sent to Egypt to punish in such a way where the firstborn would be killed. The only way the people were to avoid that judgment, Israel, Egyptian alike, was what? They were told to bring a lamb, and the lamb had to be spotless. There couldn't be any broken bones. There couldn't be any limps. There couldn't be any spots. It had to be a pure animal. It had to be inspected thoroughly. It had to be okay that, yes, this animal is worthy of the sacrifice. And they would kill that lamb. They would bring it into the family, and the kids would play with it. And he would come in and bring in this animal, this, this defenseless animal that, that was so cute and loving, and just, just hang out with the family. Four days later, they slit its throat, let the blood spill out, and then they roasted the animal. And what did God tell them to do with the blood of that lamb? If this screen is the doorway into our house, where was the blood placed? On the doorpost and on the overhang. So it was blood here, blood here, and blood on the top. And that blood would drip down, wouldn't it? And it would fall in the entryway of your home. And, and you would say, what in the world is this all about if you're a kid? First of all, we brought an animal in, and then you killed it, and then you spread its blood over our entryway to our home. What is this all about? The reason why God wanted it so striking is because throughout Scripture, we have one thing very clear. There's never forgiveness of sin without something dying. Because why? Why does something have to die, especially something innocent as a lamb? Is because that is taking the place of the lawbreaker. The pure, the holy, the innocent is standing instead of the sinner who's turned his back on God. The only one who can. Why is that the case? Well, think about this way. If you have sin and you're judged for it, you are paying a righteous penalty. The judgment is upon you for your own sin. You have no, you have no reserves, if you will. No, nothing in your bank account in which to pay for somebody else. But if you're spotless, you don't have any judgment upon you. If you're pure, as Jesus was, he could actually pay the sins for someone else because he didn't have anything to pay himself. Under inspection, even under Pilate, what did Pilate say about Jesus? The very Lamb of God. He says, I find no fault in him. The Lamb being coming into Jerusalem on the day when people were bringing and picking in their lambs and saying... These ones are inspected and they pass inspection. Jesus is coming in Jerusalem himself, being tried, being investigated, being examined. And the very judgment of that is, even from his Roman occupation, uh, leader of the, of the army at that point, Pontius Pilate, saying, I find no fault. In other words, he's checked off. He qualifies. He is the lamb. And Pontius Pilate didn't have a clue what he was saying. But he says, I find no fault in him. I can't judge him for wrongdoing. Even the enemies of Jesus said he was purified as the Lamb of God that was able, qualified to take away our sin. This is all coming together at once. And they were all there for the Passover, singing Psalms 113 through 118. By the way, when we're worshiping tonight, I was thinking about this. Hit me heavy. Hit me hard. When you consider what happened to Jesus who gave himself, coming into Jerusalem, was not just an, an act of saying, here am I the king, but it was actually giving his life over and submitting himself to evil people that would ultimately uh, kill him. But he didn't just die on the cross. It wasn't just that his lamb blood was spilt. But you consider this pure holy sacrifice being given. It's just as if, bear with me, it's just as if not only did we take the blood of the lamb, 
Okay, this is kind of heavy. Not only did you take the blood of the lamb, but we spent time beating on that lamb. We spent time pulling the hair out of that lamb. We, we, we took time, this defenseless, you know, Jesus was described as just as, as prophetic as can be. As, as a sheep is before its shear is silent, so Jesus didn't open his mouth. And his beard was being plucked out. And he was being struck. He was blindfolded. And they're like, hey, tell us who hit you. And they would do it repeatedly. I mean, there was a beating that took place. They didn't even recognize Jesus after the fact. He was so disfigured. And, and when you think about a lamb, even back to Exodus, you're thinking of Jesus, you're the only one who qualified, but, but this is a heinous thing that happened. This isn't what a victorious king is supposed to experience, right? A victorious king is supposed to do just the opposite. And yet Jesus and, and the Father, the Ancient of Days, had something far more victorious in mind. You see, because... Political autonomy or temporal ease of pain from trial is is temporal at best. But God had other enemies that he was targeting, didn't he? It wasn't the Romans. The Romans just come and go. The Roman Empire is no longer. But sin and death and the devil himself were the targets of our Father. Those were our true enemies. Those were eternal enemies. Those were enemies that, not eternal as far as onto the future, because we know that death will be swallowed up one day. But this is the reality of it. The people were focused on save now, because we want out of this predicament. But God knew that the bigger predicament was more important, didn't he? Because political or situational circumstances or environment, that stuff can come and go, and it does. It's not eternal. Sin, death, and the devil are the big enemies that he was aiming for. So our king, being pummeled and kicked and bruised and spit at, crown of thorns upon his head this Passion Week, he subjected himself to those things because he was going to defeat an enemy that can only be defeated by a pure spotless lamb. And, and God in his foreknowledge and his wisdom said, I'm going to give them every year this disturbing scene where the blood's going to be at the very entryway of their home. So every time they do it, every time they have to tell their children about it, they'll have one message, and it's God saved us when we said, save now, God. God went to an extreme, and we were fleeing Egypt. And then we got to the Red Sea, and he miraculously saved us even then with, with deliverance. So that's what God does. He delivers the people when they're powerless to do that for themselves. Last thing, as far as, or two more things as far as background. Jesus was coming in Jerusalem with the hopes of the people for political deliverance, just like the days of the Maccabeans and Syria. Now, this is really helpful in understanding the text, too. We talk about palm branches. You may be curious, what is it about palm branches that, that, uh, why was that involved in Palm Sunday? Why were the people throwing down palm branches in their cloaks and their garments before Jesus? What was that all about? Well, a lot of people trace it back to this time. Between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings, there was this time called the time of the Maccabeans. The Maccabeans, if you, uh, you're familiar with the Catholic Apocrypha, this is the, the historical books that aren't included in our Bibles, but are, are included in the Catholic Bible. And these are historical accounts. You can read them. They're worth reading. But one of them accounts, it, it just didn't meet the standards of canonized Scripture. That's why we don't have them in our Bibles necessarily. Some of you may have them in your Bibles. But if you read Maccabees, it's the account between uh, right around 167-ish. There was a nine-year revolt, basically, of this, this guy named uh, Maccabees. That was the last name. He had five sons, and they were zealous for the kingdom of Israel. They were zealous for uh, the worship of the temple to be pure. The problem was Syria was occupying Israel at the time. Uh, you guys are familiar with the celebration of Hanukkah. That's where we get Hanukkah from. You know, those eight crazy nights where the, the oil uh, lasted. It was only uh, worth, or the, the amount therein was only good for one night, but God miraculously had the menorah shine uh, eight. That's where the menorah comes from. It was because the Maccabean revolt was in full swing. And in the temple, they had the menorah only limited supply because they were going against a far greater army, that of the Syrians. The head of the Syrian army at the time was Antichus Epiphanes. Evil Evil, evil. 
uh, the Maccabean revolt, the reason why I got so much momentum, this family saying, we are not going to tolerate for the occup- occupation on the part of the Syrians because this man is evil. In fact, they called him the madman behind his back. And let me just give you an idea of Antichus and how, how brutal he was. At one point, um, by the way, he had a high opinion of himself. He took the name Epiphanes, which presumed to have meant select of God. I mean, he had a high opinion of himself. He was evil to the core, and they called him the man-man. And it says the, the, the greatest outrage committed by him occurred in 167 B.C. when he literally entered the temple of the Jews and erected a, an altar to the pagan god Zeus and he sacrificed a pig on it. Heinous, according to Jews. Not only did he sacrifice a pig, which is against Jewish law and tradition. You cannot associate with swine, right? It's a dietary restriction. But he takes it in the very temple, the very focus of where God meets with mankind, and there he sacrifices a pig. And not only that, but it, it, I've heard in some commentators, or some historians have said that he forced the high priest to drink the blood of the pig. So just horrible, ugly, heinous stuff. This was the head of the Greek Empire and, uh, in that area. And they, they basically were just saying, we have to do something. We have to revolt against this. This is not acceptable. God is being profaned, and we need to do something about it. This family took up arms, and it says they went to battle against the Syrians over nine years, and they battled against it to the point where they had victory. And as they rededicated and re-cleansed the temple, it says that the people brought out palm fronds, and they started waving them. They were closed. They weren't open like this. They were closed, and they started waving them. Why? Because it's a picture of victory. In fact, the Romans on their coins... There's pictures, I don't have it here tonight, but there's pictures of Roman coins you can go on the, online and you see this guy on horseback and he's carrying in his hand what's held up with a palm frond going backwards. The Jews did this too. They put it on their currency as well. When you had victory and you weighed palm branches, you were saying we were victorious, even against ultimate odds of the Syrians. And so when Jesus comes, by the time you have Jesus on the scene, when they wanted to demonstrate, hey, we already know the, the end of this. It's going to end in, in your victory because it's been prophesied so. We're going to bring out palm branches. And it's just going to be another repeat of when we defeated the Syrians, we're going to defeat the Romans. And you, our king, we know who you are. We've been expecting you. We're going to follow your coattails into victory over the Romans. And you're going to free us from the tyranny that we're facing today. See, this is important background. That's why they showed up with palm branches. That's why... Even today, we have these palm branches here. When I was a kid, I got a palm branch every Palm Sunday. I had no clue why. Okay? But now you know. The victory of our God goes far beyond what we could even ask, imagine, or think. So Jesus is the Son of Man coming in, the last background point, uh, fulfilling Scripture in the Old Testament. There's some Scriptures we're going to look at, and I want you guys to get the full impact of this. We're going to look at three main things. God, in advance, gave His people the following things. When the Messiah would come, how the Messiah would come, and what the people would be doing when he came. Okay? When he would come, when do you expect him? Well, God made it very clear when they expect him. When would he be on the scene? When would the promised one be in our midst? That was the first one. Number two is how would he come? Okay? And then number three is what the people would do when he came. So let's take a look at some of these amazing, amazing scriptures. When we look at, at John chapter 12, you know, he says, They came out, they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 118 with me real quick. Psalm 118, part of the Hallel, part of the praise the Lord passages. Starting in verse 19. Now mind you, approximately 73 of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms, were known by rabbis as Messianic Psalms. They're they're full of references to the coming Messiah Guess what Psalm 18 was? It was greatly known. In fact, there's specific scriptures that we quote that, that were directly attributed to the coming Messiah. This was part of it. Open 19, or starting with verse 19 and 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate. That's the Hallel. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. You say, I am the, the door. Remember that? I'm the gate. I don't know where you come in. I will praise you. I will hallel. For you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
This specific passage here, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Every rabbi taught that that was messianic. But check this out. They're rejecting the chief cornerstone in Christ and they don't even get it. They don't remember. But they were singing it during the Passover feast repeatedly over and over again. It's part of the five psalms that they, that they sung. The builders are going to reject the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the one that makes all your walls plumb. You want straight walls, you want a solid building, you've got to have the cornerstone in place. Jesus is basically being prophesied as the chief cornerstone on the day of the Lord. It's a specific day. It's not just you wake up one day and quote this scripture and say, this is the day the Lord has made, and actually be true to this context. The context is this. There will be a day in the future culminated by Christ's coming where the chief cornerstone will actually be rejected. Rejected. Utterly cast out. It's useless. Now, when your king is starting to say things like, I'm going to die... Instead of, I'm going to fulfill the scriptures that talk about my kingdom never ending, then you're, you're apt to reject it. And that's exactly what happened. That's where they went from save now to crucify him in four or five days. The, the, the whole swing momentum was, well, he needs to be rejected. Ultimately, being fulfilled in Christ. Now, verse 25, save now. This is where hashna, which is save, please Hashinah, na, is actually, there's two syllables there. It, it, it was shortened to, to Hosanna by the time of Jesus. It says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Get this, God is the Lord. God the Lord is what it says in Hebrew. There is no is there. It's implied. So they're saying the, the, that as they shout to Christ, this is huge. When they shout to Christ, Hosanna, save us, save now. They're really ascribing this passage where it says God's the one, the Lord, Yahweh. It was the name for God. No one took the name of God. That would be profane. They're ascribing it to Christ as he enters in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. They're saying, save now. We're coming to you for that request, with that request. And in the scriptures, it was ascribed to God delivering them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus wasn't just the Son of Man. He was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh, coming to save his people from their sins. So there's Psalm 118. And they flock. Just as the Passover lambs were being inspected and chosen, Jesus is showing himself as king, coming into the city. Now, just as a, as a parenthetical, Micah 5.2. You guys familiar with that? It's talking about Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, it says in Micah, you don't have to turn there, but 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Epiphath, Ephrathah, that though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now Bethlehem, this particular one, is just a few miles south from Jerusalem. And all the lambs that were used in the Passover festival came from Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. He's coming from the place of being born in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. By the way, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, Right? He was born in Bethlehem, and now he's coming on the very day where people are getting their lambs from Bethlehem, because that's where you got a Passover lamb, and he's saying, you're small, Bethlehem, to the prophet Micah, you're small, but take heart, because the Messiah is going to come forth from you. And here he comes. And they all knew that was about the Messiah. Zechariah 9, chapter, 9th chapter, verse 9, turn there if you will. Zechariah, another scripture coming to pass in this passage here. Zechariah, the minor prophet, says in verse uh, 9 of chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a what? Donkey. The colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus said, hey, disciples, I want you to go get me a donkey. It's time to ride into Jerusalem. I'm going to go. I'm going to give my life away. I'm going to die. It's time to go. You've got to get me a donkey. And they go and they find it, tied up. And he, just as they said, just as he told them, they grab it for him and he rides in on it. And it says, don't worry, daughter of Zion, the great city. You daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming. And this very day he came. And he says, your king 
your leader, your savior, your Lord. He's coming. He's coming on a donkey. Now, it's more significant on what this isn't, what he isn't riding on. He's not riding on a white horse, is he? He's not lifting a saber to the sky and say, follow me, I will conquer. He's coming in lowly and humble. Again as a lamb. A lamb isn't going to threaten you. A lamb's going to lay his life down. And he doesn't need to be on a white horse. He will be on a white horse eventually coming back. His second coming, he's described just that way. Conquering, leading armies. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. But in this case, he was first going to do battle against our real enemies, death, sin, and Satan. But right here, he's like, you want to know how your king's going to come in? He's going to come in on a donkey. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. This is the last scripture we're going to look at. But it's an amazing one. Daniel, as you know, was in Babylon. He was in exile. He was longing to be back in his homeland. He was longing to be back worshiping at the temple. And in the meantime, since he loved God, he served God, God was meeting him in amazing ways. And in in Daniel chapter 7... He, he describes this account of him being given the privilege of seeing God the Father. Chapter 7, verse 9. Read this with me. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Just, just pause there for a second. The whole throne... Is filled with fire. I mean, you get a picture of God lifted up on his throne room and it's all flaming up. You're, you're obviously coming with reverence, right? You don't approach a throne of fire just casually or boldly. And you certainly don't look at someone with eyes of fire, hair of white, garment as white as snow with, with just, hey, how's it going, God? You come in with reverence. You come in bowed low. You recognize who you are in light of that is very much the one in need, not the one demanding anything. It says its wheels were a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before, from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before this throne, before Father, before the Ancient of Days. And the court was seated and the books were opened. So we're about to have a judgment scene. And, and Daniel's given privilege of, 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 of being able to see this. And in in verse 13, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. It wasn't the Ancient of Days. came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The Ancient of Days? No, the one like the Son of Man, who came to the Ancient of Days. His dominion is the everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the kind of guy the people are wanting to come conquer Rome, isn't it? This is someone who comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days being the Father, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, says, I want to give you the kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. There's one like the Son of Man who receives that. Now, God is working to send his Son on our behalf, But this king who's coming is going to give lessons like this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Mark 10. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be slave of all. That's what Jesus was saying. Here's the one who's been given the kingdom, and he's saying, hey, if you want to be like me, the Son of Man, and that's what he referred to him at many times. As you read the, the Gospels, he referred to him, referred to himself Time and time again as the Son of Man. You think back to the scripture in Daniel like, oh my goodness, this is a totally different thing than you would have expected in all human history. By juxtaposing this kind of king who has an everlasting kingdom with the rulers of this world, there's no comparison. They're totally the different uh, like and means when Jesus is saying things like, I came to serve. No, you don't serve, Jesus. You you don't wash feet, Jesus, as Peter would say. You're not going to wash my feet. If you're the son of man and you're the one who's given dominion and glory and power and your everlasting kingdom is the one that's reigning and ruling for all eternity, there's no way you're going to do slave work and wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have nothing to do for me. 
with me. And he's like, well, in that case, wash my head as well. All the way down. Wash me. That's what we come and we say. It, it, it leaves you in awe of who this lamb is when you realize the throne that he left to come and save us. But in chapter 9 of Daniel, 70 weeks, verse 24, this is the most amazing of the, of the when, when, when would the Messiah come on the scene. You guys may be familiar with this. It's the prophecy in Daniel, chapter 9, 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the what? The transgression. To make an end of what? Sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks, Daniel, as you've been interceding for your people, recognizing that a wicked people have turned their backs on God, deserved judgment, you've been interceding for them. And it says, when, when, at the beginning of your supplication, when it went out, I gave a decree. Gabriel, by the way, the archangel is telling David, or, uh, Daniel this. He says, 70 weeks are determined for the people of Israel. In verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. When it says not for himself, that means he'll have nothing to show for earthly wisdom or earthly riches, rather, at all. He'll be just utterly empty. He won't have anything as far as reserves left. He's going to be cut off, and the Messiah will not have nothing to show for it, worldly speaking, in a worldly sense. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, which happened in 70 AD. He's saying you have 70 weeks for the people of Israel, their sin to be dealt with. But 69, after 69 weeks, you're going to have the Messiah. He's going to come, and he's going to be cut off. And that's in the cutting off. He's going to have nothing to show. He's going to give his life. And we we can put that parenthetically in there. Now, why is that super significant? Well, God says, I am going to give you when the Messiah will come. So you can know in advance who to look for in the timing of this. And you guys may have heard of this before, but do you know that Daniel wrote this in the first year of Darius the king? The year was 538 B.C. And about 95 years later, in the year of 445 B.C., the commandment was finally given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah the prophet to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you take 69 weeks and you multiply it by 7, because that's the amount of years we're talking about, 69, 7, that's 69 times 7, you get 483 years. So the decree comes out in 445 B.C., the commandment was finally given to restore Jerusalem and the walls at that time to Nehemiah. 483 years, in, you're going by a Babylonian calendar, which is 360 days a year, not 365, because he's writing this in Babylon. You take 360 and you multiply it by that number of 483, and you end up with a lot, really high number of days. But here's the thing. You go out in the calendar and you end up when you do that, to April 6th, 32 A.D., the very day of the lambs being chosen by the people for their Passover, when Jesus rides in on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem, saying, here am I, I'm the king, I'm the one you've been waiting for, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to be cut off. I'm going to give my life. The anointing that happened to me at Bethany was for my burial. And so God wanted them to know when to expect the Messiah. He wanted to show them how it was going to happen. He was going to come on a donkey, like the prophecies told. They were going to shout Psalm 118 to him as he came in, saying, save us now. Save us politically, but God had a lot deeper plans in place to save the people from their very worst enemy, which is their own sin. Guys, take, take a finger and just point it to your own heart for a second. And just say, I am saved because Jesus heard my cry, saved now. He didn't have to do that. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was described from John the Baptist to his disciples, describing Jesus. He's like, there he is. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And they left John the Baptist and immediately followed Jesus. And you can say, I am saved because God 
love me enough to put these plans into place hundreds, thousands of years in some cases, way before, even if going back to Moses, even back to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden, God's been about the redemption of people who have turned their back on God, that deserve punishment, that deserve getting kicked around like a lamb. But Jesus took our place and actually spilled his own blood so that we could be forgiven of our sin, not just so we could just be forgiven of sin, but that we could have restored relationship with the Father who loved us and who gave his Son who gave the Messiah that would be cut off, who would come in and clearly declare himself. You know, this was the first time that Jesus received worship openly. Before he was suppressing it, now he's just saying, hey, if the rocks, or if the people don't cry out, the rocks will cry out for them. He's saying, yeah, it's good. I'm I'm he, I'm on the scene, and I'm going to die. And the people didn't want that. They wanted them, they wanted a king that was going to conquer and set up everything so they would be freed of the tyranny that enslaved them. And that will happen. But it won't be a temporal kingdom. It will be eternal. It will be deep. And it will be enough. And the Lamb of God will have the final victory. Because he laid himself low. And he allowed sinful men and women to, to punish him. Sinful men being the leaders of the Jews and the Romans themselves. And he, who perfected crucifixion. That he might spread out his arms to either side and say, If any would come... Let him drink. If any would come, have this bread. And if any would come, partake of this lamb. You know, it says that Jesus, there was not one bone that was broken through that whole process. Do you know that when the Passover lambs were given over in an offering to the priest, they would give them cuts of meat back from that lamb, but they would carve it. The priest would carve the meat off because they were afraid to break a bone of the lamb themselves. The priest would carve the meat this just blows me away. They wouldn't carve the meat off the, the lamb themselves. They would take it to a priest who was trained to do this so that no bones were accidentally broken. The priests were so good at it. They would take that meat from the priest after they carved it because they didn't want a bone broken because it was prophesied. They, they should, there's not one bone going to be broken in the Messiah. The prophecy after prophecy after Isaiah. I mean, there's so many more we could have gone into the whole thing culminating in Jesus is our king, laid his life down, and this is how he was doing it. So guys, are you not thankful that God heard your prayer when you shouted Hosanna? Sometimes we didn't even mean it very much. You know, like, help me out of this predicament, God. Or do this work in my life. Or I don't even know who you are, but reveal yourself to me. These, these kind of prayers that God says, okay, I'll answer that. I love you. I've been working at this a long time, and I'm not going to turn my back on you now. And sometimes you just come to this kind of prophecy after prophecy at prophecy, and you can kind of get head knowledge puffed up. But when you realize that this happened because you were on his heart and on his mind, that you start wanting to worship and lay your life down and say, God, if you were going to do that for me, if you took the blows, if you rode in on a donkey, knowing that your destination was not one of a palace, not one to be served, not one to just be waited on, but you were going to lay down your own life willfully and actually have spikes go through your wrists and your feet and have a crown not of gold but of inch-long, three-inch-long, two-inch-long thorns go in your scalp and being plucked your beard out and having struck by people that blindfolded you and were mocking you and put purple robes and were berating you because you were supposedly the king. How could somebody be a king like that? You, when you realize that's done for you, your heart's melted. And when your heart's melted, you're in a great place to glorify the Lord. Because you're looking like the Savior. Guys, we don't need strong muscles and beat up people. Our Savior didn't do that. We're about a different agenda. Because our Savior was about a different agenda. Amen? We're about praying for people. We're about loving people that are unlovable. We're about seeing God move in a spiritual realm that conquers the defeated foe called the enemy of our souls who wants to enslave people, wants to keep them blinded, wants to keep them enslaved, wants to keep us from, from leaving our place of blessing and going back to Egypt in a lot of ways. But praise God, he's more powerful than enemy. Praise God, he conquered death. Praise God, he rose from the grave to prove that this lamb could not be kept down. And he was more powerful a lamb than any false lion could ever be as he rose from the dead victoriously. And that's what we're celebrating this week. Isn't that amazing? Palm Sunday is a huge crux and apex of human history, ordained by God for our benefit, for our blessing. 
Please join me in worshiping him now in response to this. He is amazing. He's our God. He's our king. King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why don't we stand together? Why don't you just bow your head? And why don't we just take a, a couple moments while the team comes up just to thank him in your own heart for working all these things out so that we might be saved. So let's all stand together, shall we? Let's not let rocks cry out tonight. Let's give him praise. Let's come before this lamb and humble ourselves. Let's exalt him, king of kings and lord of lords. It says in the scripture that every knee and every tongue shall join the right place by bowing and proclaiming that he is the Lord. And um, let's do that now. God, we just want to thank you for doing what we couldn't do for ourselves and freeing us from our true enemy, not the Romans, not the Syrians, not trial, not the enemy even, God. You, you, you have conquered our own sin. You have provided the Lamb of God that we might be saved from our sin and the penalty therein. And we're humbled before you, God, and we're so thankful. We're so thankful that, you're, that you've given us a faith that's, that's grounded in fact. It's grounded in history, real events, real people. And, and it's not just this wish. It's not, it's not positive thinking. It goes way beyond that and more to the very workings of God through human history. Lord, we worship you because you've done all that and more. And God, as we say, Hosanna, even tonight, Lord, save us. May you hear our prayer. May you hear the prayers, maybe perhaps prayed for the very first time in a person's heart. And save us, God, from our own sin, our own depravity, from the penalties that we deserve for that sin. And Lord, we thank you that even tonight we stand righteous because of that precious blood from our Lamb of God that was spilled over our sin and blotted out and washed away as white as snow. And so, Lord, we give you honor and praise. And pray that we would all, right now, just worship you as the King. Because, Lord, you're amazing. And we love you. Receive honor tonight.